uh, one of the things that I want to reiterate kind of as a disclaimer, and it's actually the thing that I dislike about the graphic for this class. It says, with Tyler Kirkpatrick. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> the reason is this. Um, and, and part of the reason to do this class is to just remind us that we're not professionals. I think there is a real danger in assuming that when it comes to raising another human being, anyone could be labeled as a professional because there are just too many factors involved in that. And so, you know, it's kind of strange. You got people much older than me, like Jamie Herndon here. <laughs> and it's like, well, why would I be saying anything to Jamie or to Brad or Melinda? Like, why would, why would I do that? because we're not professionals. We are sinners who have been given a stewardship of sinners. And so the thing we need to do before we do anything else when it comes to parenting is just remind ourselves that we are completely and totally reliant on God's grace to do this. God has called us to raise our children in a particular way in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And if we are to do that, it means that we must come to him and he will enable us to do what he has called us to do. But we are still sinners with the stewardship of sinners. So I think what we need, yeah, I mean, for sure, we need good conferences as long as they're healthy ones. We need good conferences. We need all the books. We need all the things. Like, they're, they're, they're good. They're God's grace to us. That's fine. But before any of those things, we need his word, his church, and we need his grace. And so when you look around this room, what I hope you take from this is not necessarily that these are the people who are getting it right or vice versa. Oh man, these are the people that's, that are really struggling, right? That could be the other thing. Like, you know, you go to a marriage conference and it's like, oh, why are they going to a marriage conference? Things must not be good, right? It's like the assumption. But I, I, don't, I don't think we should do that. I don't think we should make any assumptions about anyone else in this room. I think what we should see is a bunch of parents who are simply wanting to be intentional with how they raise their children, in particular how we ask these four questions over the next week. So I want us to fight the urge to be perfect parents who, who raise perfect children, right? Because when we do that, when we become the perfect parents who raise the perfect children, here's what we do. We demand the best behavior even at the cost of putting off the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves. Right? It's what always happens. We want children who obey at like the snap of a finger, even if it means we get frustrated and lose our temper. But that's okay because we have good, obedient children. Well, that's ridiculous. And so I want us to fight the urge to be perfect parents who raise perfect children because you are both sinners living in a home that is stained by sinners, and neither of you will ever be perfect, right? So I just think we need to throw that out of our minds. What we want to do is we want to not only instruct our children in godliness, we want to model godliness for them, right? Much of parenting is just as much of you living the Word of God before them as you are instructing them in it. Why would they ever want to do what we say if they can't do what we do like within reason. Obviously, you have a bedtime because we need to hang out without you. But it's important that they see in us the things that we are instructing them in, right? That's what this is about. So here's the question. Uh, how do we respond to a child that professes faith in Jesus? Uh, what we'll do today is I will teach here for probably about 30 minutes and then uh, Brad and Jennifer have just very graciously committed themselves. <laughs> I actually, I cornered Brad in the office, in the kitchen, while he was making a smoothie. And I was like, hey, Brad, you want to do this thing? And he was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so they are going to answer some of our questions. We'll do a quick Q&A with them. And again, I mean, Brad is the lead pastor of this church. Jennifer is the first lady of this church, which you should refer to her as from now on. And if you don't, you will be disciplined. <laughs> but, you know, the temptation in typical churches is just to think, well, the pastor and his family, they have it all figured out. Well, they're not professionals either. And so we want to hear from them how this has gone, not necessarily how we can ensure that we would have better children. All right? That's, that's not the point. So we'll hear from them here in a moment. So 
First, as we think about this question, how do we respond to a child that professes faith in Christ? I do think that it's very important, and we would, it would be a misstep if we didn't first ask the question, what is the gospel? And the reason is this. The gospel in the New Testament is called the euangelion, that is the good news, right? Well, good news cannot merely be just a set of facts. It, it certainly is that. The gospel is certainly a set of facts that Jesus was given. He died. Three days later, he rose from the dead. If you place your faith in him, you can be saved. There are factual aspects to the gospel. But the reason the good news is such good news is because it's so much bigger than a set of facts, right? It's actually the expression of God's plan of redemption from Genesis and everything that precedes Genesis into eternity to Revelation and everything that follows into eternity future. All of it is painted by God's plan of redemption. So this is, this is literally the expression of God's heart for his people and his plan to save them. The good news is the singular answer to our multifaceted problem. Sin affects all of us, some of us in the same way, some of us in different ways. Sin affects you because of things you do, and sin affects you because of things that happen to you. Sin is multifaceted. There is no limit to the number of problems that sin has brought into our lives, and yet there is still one answer to all of them, and it's Jesus. And that's why this good news is not just a set of facts. It's the literal expression of God's heart, right? This is Jesus Christ coming and living and dying and raising to come and receive God's people, right? So this news then, if we see it not merely as a set of facts for a moment, and then we just continue on with our life, right? this is what I'm telling the youth group all the time. The gospel in your life is not about a moment. Certainly it's that, and that's totally fine if you cherish a moment where your mother or your father or your grandparents or a special pastor led you to the Lord, you know, as we say. That's totally fine. But if that's all the good news ever is to you, you're missing out the fact that the good news is actually the thing that shapes your entire life, the way you think about things, the way you live your life, and certainly the way you will parent. But also, we want our children to begin to understand that the gospel, this good news, will be the thing that we want to use to help them shape their lives. You don't obey just to obey. You obey because it's pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, like what he would have you to do. So the gospel is everything. It's everything to us and to Christ's church. So what is it? Well, it is the good news. But what I want to ask is what does the Bible say the good news is, right? We, we could say a lot of things, and I've said a few of them, but I think what would be most helpful for us is to see this in entire redemptive picture throughout the Bible. And you might be thinking, we don't have time for that. Well, we don't in one sense, but in another sense, we do. So there's this paradigm, and it's on your, your handout, God, man, Christ response. And the reason I think it's so helpful to go through this is because when you think about the Bible, and I don't know who actually came up with this for the first time. I came across it. I'm sure it was either an author or um, a, a professor. But they talk about this, this scarlet thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. And that's God's plan of redemption. It's his plan from basically what we know in human history, from Genesis chapter 3, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, all the way into eternity when we're standing before the throne praising the lamb that has sacrificed his life right? The Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. And this thread runs throughout all of the Bible. In fact, the entire Bible is about this thing. Well, that's really helpful when we are teaching our children, and especially as we're assessing their profession of faith, we want to teach them the entirety of the Bible as it relates to the thing they are proclaiming, right? Like we want them to understand these things, and so we want to teach them well. All right, so God, and then I hand, this uh, I think is really helpful when we're going through a bunch of scriptures. Um, I gave you this little reference sheet of the scriptures here. But let's start first with um, God. Genesis 1, 26 and 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing 
that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so what we see here is that humans are created especially for relationship with God. Obviously, there are other things that have been created, whether it be the sun or some fish or birds. There are a lot of things that are being created in God's creation, and yet one of those things is set apart, and that is man and woman. So what this means is when we consider God in this paradigm, what we're meant to see is that we are created for relationship with God. Now, what you're going to see is we're going to move through this pretty fast, and there's so much more you could say on every one of these and so many more scriptures but for our sake, I'm limiting it severely. But what we're meant to see in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 is that we're meant to dwell with him. The whole purpose of God's creation of man is to be with him and to glorify him, right? All right, so skip down to man. And now all of these things, remember this scarlet thread, all of these things work together in this story, right? All right, so Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I grew up in a KJV-only church, and we went through the Romans road, and it, to this day it just still sticks. When you want the plan of salvation, I just go to the book of Romans. Um, which, side note, is Brad Evangelista's favorite book of the Bible until recently when it became Hebrews. <laughs> Just a little insight. All right, so we're created for a relationship with God. We're meant to dwell with him. That's the God. And then we get to man, and we see in Genesis chapter 3, stated here in Romans 3 and Romans 6, that our sin has broken our relationship with him. And if you continue in, in Genesis chapter 3, what you see is that our sin is so severe, and this relationship is so important to God, that they are actually cast out east of Eden. They are sent away. And it's so important that there are angels placed at the entrance of the garden to keep them out. So you have God creating us for his glory to do the things that would bring him glory, to live with him, to dwell in intimacy with him, to have a relationship like we've never known. And then we destroy that relationship through disobedience. Right? Our disobedience gets us cast out to dwell with him no longer. And then you come to Christ. So John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what we see, this good news, the, the beginning of this kind of tangible good news that we see in the New Testament, right? Because everything in the Old Testament is not detached from the New Testament, but it's blurry. We, we don't see the full picture. We, we don't understand quite yet who the person is that's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? We see him in Isaiah. We see him in Moses. We see him not in Isaiah, the person, but in the book of Isaiah, we see the suffering servant, but we see Moses. We see David. We see all of these kind of pictures pointing us to the one who would crush the serpent's head, and yet we don't get to see him until the good news is made clear to us, right? And Jesus comes, and John the Baptist comes, and they proclaim this good news right? The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe, right? What, what the, the point Christ here tells us is that the Son has come to restore our relationship to the Father, right? He has, he has come to redeem us, to purchase back what has been lost. Now, redemption is extremely important, especially the concept of redeeming, because what this means is that there is no other way for this relationship to be restored other than a purchase right? Jesus couldn't just come and live a good life and be God and be like, yeah, come on, you guys, like, this is the way, follow, follow me. No, again, in the garden, this relationship, this thing that God has covenanted with Adam and Eve is so important that when they lose it, it must be bought back. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a penalty paid in order for this relationship to be restored. And this good news is that Jesus came to do that. He came to seek and save the lost, the ones that God would be drawing to himself. And then finally, uh, point D here, response. Ephesians, there's uh, a couple here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And this is such an important passage. 
It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. So that in the coming ages he might show his imme- the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 10, 9-13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's this picture, this dwelling with God, this relationship, the losing of this relationship, this being cast out, this good news that God has sent his son to restore this relationship. And probably the best news of all for us is all we have to do is believe. There's nothing we can do to restore this relationship. There's no good work or enough works that we could possibly ever do in order to be saved. Now, before we go on, let's relate that to parenting. What that means is our demand of obedience should never become confused with something that will save our children. Now, that goes two ways. We want to be careful that they don't assume from us that doing everything we say is somehow the means to salvation. Or that we look at our children and we think, man, we've got some pretty obedient children, pretty primed for glory. I mean, in God's grace, I think there is a sense in which when God gives a child into a believing home, that is a, a huge grace to a child. I don't want to discount that. But we, as the creature, should never look at these circumstances and be like, okay, well, you know, we got about a 30% more chance here with this one. But if you have more than one child, you're like, oh, shoot, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> there may be that one or two of four or three. I don't know. Four is just a random number, by the way. <laughs> but we want to be really careful that we never insinuate that works are anything pre-gospel, ever. It doesn't mean we shouldn't demand obedience but we need to make sure that we never confuse obedience in our minds or in the minds of our children that somehow this will save you. That you pleasing your mom and dad is the same thing as someday finding salvation or finding it in this. Right? Now, you, you, you please your mom and your dad because it pleases the Lord. That's absolutely true. An obedient child is a pleasure to God, but it will not save them. So the response, essentially what all the Bible says is that we're called to see our sin, to turn from our sin, and to turn to, in Christ, turn to Christ in faith, right? That's what we're constantly doing, turning from sin and turning to Christ. It's confession of our sin, it's faith and belief, which are one and the same, and it's repentance. And none of those things are preemptive to God's grace. All of these things are responsive. They're all gifts of God to us. Our confession, our faith, our belief, our repentance, all of those things are God's gift to us by his work and through his spirit. We, we, we cannot cultivate those good works in our children because they do not exist within them. Right? They are sinners just like we were sinners. And I'm sitting as a nine-year-old boy in the back pew of Mamre Baptist Church and I get up and go forward at this altar call, and, and I get saved. I did not plan to do that. Like, I didn't go there that night thinking, you know what? There's going to be a lot of 70-year-olds here. It'd be a nice night to get saved. <laughs> That's not what happened. I was sitting there, and my, 
palms were sweaty, my knees were heavy. I'm shaking. Anybody? Is, yeah, there we go. Okay, I'm sorry. There's a little M&M there. <laughs> but I'm just sitting there, and I have no idea what's going on. But I'm like, you know what? I guess this is about me. Like, I'm nine. I'm a punk. And I'm just like, you know, I guess, I guess this is about me. I guess they're telling me that I'm supposed to come forward. And I could have not gone forward. I could have gone forward and not gotten saved. But in God's grace, he saved me. That's the point. He saves our children. He saves them. They, they cannot do anything to be saved. So our job is to teach them the gospel that they might respond to this good news and be saved. Right? Okay, so if I had to, um, if I had to give a definition of the gospel in two sentences, and I did this really as an exercise for me because it's really hard and probably unwise, but I did it. And if you go to any confession, really good confession of faith, it's like, oh, let's just see what they said. Well, it's seven paragraphs, three points, four sub points, and that's really helpful and good. But if we were to say, okay, well, what is the good news? What is the good news? When we sum it up, what is the good news? What must be there? And when I, I, I did this. All have sinned against God and suffer separation from him as his enemies. But in his grace, God freely offers salvation through Jesus Christ and asks only that we believe in him. I, I, think, that's, I think that's what it is. And now here's one of the things. I, I think this could be really helpful. Uh, just as a little side note on my definition here. Um, when we think about the gospel or share the gospel, I think sometimes we have these uh, like little boxes that we check. We're like, okay, well, and that's actually good. Your boxes should be God, man, Christ response. That actually should be the box. But when we think about what we say at the moment, you know, like the moment, like the moment when we know people are going to get saved, like that moment, you know, when you're like, you do start to get sweaty and you're like, okay, I really got to make sure I get this right because their entire eternity rests on my shoulders, right? That's kind of how it feels sometimes. It's not true, but it's how it feels. So we, we're like, okay, did I say this or did I say this? And then you start thinking about the conversation in the past. And you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't say this thing. Let me relieve a little bit of pressure. Um, faith and repentance and even the lordship of Jesus Christ in the moment of conversion, the Bible never separates these things like we do. And so what we can sometimes do is we're like, okay, um, step one, repent. Re no, like really repent. <laughs> A little more aggressively. Okay, good. All right. Now, do you believe in Jesus? Like with everything, everything, like even those favorite toys, all of it. Do you believe you do? Good. You're still repentant, right? Okay. Do you think that Jesus Christ is now the Lord of your life? You, you don't? Okay. You do. You do think he is, right? And so we, it's like these things, well, did they do? The Bible never separates the moment of God's saving grace into these categories. Right? These are all gifts that God gives us, and, and they are, like, they happen instantaneously. And so this definition, as I thought through it, I mean, it really is we've sinned, we're separated from God, we are his enemies. He sent his son in his grace to freely save us if we would believe in him. All right, we are sinners, we are separated Jesus is our salvation. That's the gospel. All right, so what you all came for. What does it, well, actually, that's when they come up. Sorry. What you all have to endure before Brad and Jennifer come. What does it look like to discern and affirm a child's profession of faith? Okay, so what is our role in this? Right? If this is God's work, what role do we play? And now remember, I am not a professional. There are so many things we could say. You're going to walk away and you're going to be like, well, why didn't he say this? Well, why don't you teach the class? <laughs> this is just a very limited perspective, right? I am not a professional, and I want you to know that. So when I say these things, I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm just trying to give you some pastoral biblical encouragement, as well as myself. So what is our role? Well, number one, we are not televangelists. We are not here for the responses. The Bible doesn't treat pastors like that, and he certainly doesn't treat parents like that. We are not here for the purpose of getting our kids to respond to the gospel, right? Now hear my heart in this. What we are then is we are farmers, right? We don't solicit responses. We plant seeds and we tend to what God grows. That's our job. We are his chosen instruments, the first line instruments 
in God's salvation in the life of our children. We are first line. And so we do the work. We put the hand to the plow and we get to tend to what he is pleased to do in them. So that means that you're never going to have that conversation at bedtime when it's like, you know what? I've had a good day and I'm really ready to let it rip. And I'm going to share the gospel so hard. And these kids tonight are getting saved. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, you know, there's a temptation though. There's a temptation to that. But it's not our job. We're farmers. Okay, number one, discerning. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. <clears throat> it says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, so what we have to remember as we're thinking through these things, thinking of a child maybe that professes faith, or even before that, thinking about this moment when it comes, what we need to remember is that the work of the gospel is, all caps, a transformative work from first to last. The gospel in anyone's life is a transformative work. It is a transformative work. It is the work that the gospel does in us. It transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Now, some of our transformation is that like on a highway. Some of us, we have a transformation that's like kind of we go through the swamp and it's a little slower. But we are transformed from one degree of glory to another because of the work of the gospel in us. That is true for our children as well. They do not get a pass because they are children, right? And so what we, what we realize then is that when we think about the gospel in anyone's life, we must also be thinking towards this progressive sanctification, right? Sanctification simply means to be set apart. So you have what's called positional sanctification at the moment of your salvation. I'm going to stop snapping. It's like my thing this morning, so I'm going to quit it. it. At the moment of salvation, you have positional sanctification where you are plucked out of the world and you are placed into the redeemed, right? But then you continue to live in that manner. You are progressively set apart from the world, from sin and death and the old you. You grow into the new, right? So this comes, though, um, and if, let me read this to you. I don't think I put it on there. Ephesians chapter 4. This comes with a little bit of work. Because if you are saved, then there is a beautiful reality about you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, it says, Assuming that you have heard about him, that is Jesus, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So progressive sanctification is essentially this in your life. It's certainly the work of the gospel, but it's worked out like this obeying God and his command by choosing to put off the old you and to put on Christ. That's really important when you're thinking about discerning someone's salvation and the validity of that salvation. Well, okay, how do you discern something that you can't really see because it's something that has happened between God and man? Well, the Bible tells us is that this thing will bear fruit. There will be evidence in this person's life. Right? So what this means then for us, of, of parents of young people in particular, is that discernment, this discerning faith, when they come to us and they say, hey, I, you know, I think I'm a Christian or I want to be saved, and, and you have that special moment, it's like, okay, well, what do I do at that moment? Will you discern? Well, here's what progressive sanctification teaches us about discerning. It is inevitably going to take some time to see the work of the gospel in their life. Certainly, I think the first evidence of that will be a ever-growing right understanding of sin. I think that's number one. I, I think that's the most basic. When you see fruit in our lives, it's kind of that thing where sometimes people will come to you and they'll be like, well, I just keep doing this thing, and it's like assurance of salvation issues, and it's like, wait, so you hate this sin? Okay, so you hate the sin. You don't want to do the sin, yeah, but you're struggling with the sin. Yes. You don't think you're a Christian? No. Okay, well, I do. 
because you are someone who is on the edge of living in darkness and maybe you're bouncing in and out, but your greatest desire is to be in the light. John 1 tells me that the darkness hates the light and fears it and flees from it. Friend, you're running to the light. I think that's the number one fruit, is, a, is an ever-growing right understanding of sin, wanting to live in the light and not in darkness. Now, with small children, that's going to take time. Because I don't know how many times you've asked, hey, um, is, it, did, is, are you chewing gum? Where did you get gum? Oh, this ain't gum, Dad. You don't understand. <laughs> okay. I mean, kids, like, they just, they're kids. They're sinners. And so you're going to have to take time to discern these things. All right, so should we be suspicious? Right, that would be the next thing. Okay, well, are you saying then that when my child professes faith, I should just be suspicious of them? Well, the answer is no. What I'm saying is that we need to be patient. We need to be patient. We need to be long-suffering. If God can be long-suffering knowing all, then we really need to be long-suffering knowing basically nothing. We, we do not know their heart. Only God can know their heart. And so if God can be long-suffering with what he knows, we can be patient with what we don't. Right? So our hope for them is also the hope that we have for ourselves. Right? Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't need to be worried about being patient because I can't save them anyways. I can be patient knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So what I can do is I can be a farmer. I can, I can look at that. I can tend to it. I can help them. I can constantly be pointing them to God, man, Christ response. I can give them good things to be reading. I can do studies. I can do all the things. And I can be patient knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Okay, so affirming, number two, and we'll move faster here. And then we'll uh, bring our special guests up. So affirming. All right, so the temptation I think we face, and man, if you're on Facebook, you see this all the time. And, and listen, if you're that person, praise God, I, I get it, but I think there's a danger. And I say this because I grew up in a missionary Baptist church where so many of the people that got saved in the same time period as me are not believers at all now. And, and so I just want to be careful that we don't do unintended harm. So please don't hear me condemning you. I just, I just want to say it may be unwise. So the temptation that we face as parents is we look at our children, we see this profession of faith, and we see like a, what seems to be a little piece of fruit, and we're like, yes. And so we pluck that fruit, and then we tell everyone, look, look, look. Praise God. And I get it. I get it. I really do get it. I want that moment. I, I want that moment with every one of my children. One of my sons has professed faith for, for many, I guess maybe four years now, probably right around four years. And what I want to do is I want to pluck that fruit and I just want to show people, not because I'm proud, but because I'm like, I'm so happy, I'm so pleased, right? And so we take this profession and we hold it up and then we affirm it wholeheartedly. We tell everyone, my kid is now a Christian. And inevitably, because we're who we are, well, some of us, like we share it on social media because that's just what we do. Because it didn't happen, not even salvation, unless we share it on social media. Right, but what is better is to tend to it. So we'll get to what affirming really means here in just a moment. But, but this is, um, and I'm so sorry, Brad. I just, I fell in love with this passage a long time ago, and I'm using it. This is not probably contextually right, though we can draw some illustrations, which is what I will do. 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Okay, so let me tell you what's happening. Paul is writing to Timothy, and there is this moment unknown to us because it's not recorded in Scripture where this gift is given to Timothy that we don't know what it is. My best assumption is it's probably the gift of his pastoral capabilities, and these other elders, they've laid their hands on Timothy, and this gift has been given by God to Timothy, I think probably for ministry's sake. Here's the, here's the purpose that we're going to use this for, though. 
right? So we, we look at this, we look at our children, we see this profession, and we want to say, yes, affirm, awesome, that's great. Well, what God tells us to do, as we understand the principle that's going on here in 2 Timothy, is that it is God who does the initiating work. I almost snapped. The initiating work. And what we are then called to do with what God has given us is to fan it into flame, to get on our hands and knees and to blow breath into that, to blow oxygen into that spark that it might become a blaze. Well, when we think about the professions our children are making, I really want us to think of them the same way. We could wholeheartedly just affirm everything that's happening and say, well, we know what God is doing in his grand scheme, not knowing anything past this moment. Or we could say, praise God, now I need to start working. Now is like when the work of tending to this, what is this professed proclamation of the gospel, now's the time to tend. I got to get on my hands and my knees and I got to blow this thing into flame. I got to help them learn that they need to be on their hands and knees blowing into this flame, right? I think, I think that is better. The reason we shouldn't rush to confirm our children's faith is because they will stand before God and give an account for their own life. So Romans 14, 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay, we do not ever think of our children in that light. Right, this is, oh, this is the other adult church member, right? Like that's, that's who's going to stay in judgment. Well, no, what the Bible is telling us is that every single person is going to stand before the judgment throne of God, believer or not. So why do we want to be careful not just to affirm something that may not be true? Because they're going to stand before God. They're going to face their own judgment, not us. We're not going to stand before God and be held accountable for them. And probably we don't even get to stand beside them where it's like, son, what is your answer for why you should enter into heaven? And we're like, say Jesus. Say, don't, don't say mom. Say Jesus. Like, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. They're going to stand before God and answer to him. Right? We're not suspicious, we're patient, and we're tending. Because we want, ultimately, for them to be able to stand before God and give an account for what God has done for them in Christ. And since the Bible expects that we will personally commit to following Jesus as disciples, our task then is to disciple them. We're to train them up in the way that they should go. Uh, the first time you have this, the great commandment, is, it's called the Shema, it's a prayer that would have been prayed, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Luke chapter 10, verse 27 adds, with your mind. So when we think about our children, our task in receiving them as they confess Christ is to help them conform their lives into the image of Christ. Right? It's not, it's not, I mean, as proud as we want to be, it's not to say, look what God has done. I want to tell everyone. No, the immediate task that we face when our children profess faith is to say, okay, discipleship now. Like not just, you know, the basic God, man, Christ response, discipleship, but we're now moving into a realm of what you're professing is how we're going to expect you to live and how we will help you live. If, if you're saying that Jesus has saved you, what you're saying is that you have been made new. And so we're going to help you learn what that is and what that means. And we're going to help you as you conform your life into the image of Jesus. So here's what we're doing. When we say discern, what we're doing is we're looking for evidence for fruit of the work of the gospel, which will take time. But when we move to affirming, what I'm actually saying is we're helping them to affirm. We're trying to get them to a place where they can affirm their own faith. Not for us, Certainly, we want to be convinced. I mean, that's literally what we do when we, we, we watch baptism. We, we let this person tell us and convince us that they are a believer. But what we're doing is we're not affirming something that we know about them. We're affirming something they're telling us. And so that's what we're doing. Um, Brad and Jennifer, please come to the stage. Okay, I'm just going to ask some questions here, and I have a few, and I think I'm going to cut some of them. What are some of the questions your children had? along the lines of their salvation or questions about coming to faith and how did you navigate them? 
Um, well, first I just want to say, as I was sitting there listening to you, Tyler, how much I appreciate you doing this. I thought, gosh, 25 years ago when we were, or almost 25 years ago when we were young parents, I wish that I would have been, um, I wish I had a culture like this and, and a pastor like this to kind of help us. Um, we just weren't in a theological environment like this, so, um, but by God's grace we are now, so. Uh, I'm really thankful for what you're doing. Um, I guess I would say some of the things that questions we had that our kids had. I don't know. I feel like if there's one overarching thing that I want you to get is that the, that God's grace is greater than our imperfections as parents. And um, you may, most of you probably know all of our children, and you know Jennifer and I. Um, I think. Please do not impose on us some sort of um, perfect parenthood. We have made lots of mistakes. And despite that, uh, the Lord has been very kind to us. Um, I would say uh, a couple things, and then I want Jennifer to fill in blanks because I think she's done a lot more of the groundwork in their hearts uh, over the years, is that um, we, our kids, I think, by God's grace, grew up in a good gospel preaching church. And they had, I guess, the blessing and the not blessing of having their dad be the primary preacher of God's word. And so they got, I think, here, good explanations of mm -hmm. the gospel and teaching. But I think they also got a front row seat to uh, my hypocrisy and the gap between what I would say publicly on a Sunday morning and how I would actually live. Um, and so they, you know, not that there's some wanton rebellion against the Lord. Um, so I think the, the practical ways that, that um, some of the questions, the, the questions that our kids had, were more just everyday questions about how to live the gospel out in their lives, problems with friends. Um, they were not some of the great grand questions about, you know, is there a God and what has Jesus done? Because I think they got a lot of that in kids' church and youth ministry and Sunday mornings. It was more, you know, how does the gospel apply? And so mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of our instruction came in was in resisting the temptation to sort of apply moralism to our kids and say, this is how you got to be the good little pastor's kid, but giving them grace to ask those questions without being um, uh, threatened by those questions as if, oh my gosh, my kid's not really getting mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so Jennifer, you, what would you say? Sure. Um, I agree with the fact that our kids, because they did hear repeatedly, and I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as parents, is to remind them repeatedly, not just in our own, um, speak at home because honestly we're busy doing a lot of things and sometimes you know we don't sit down like Tyler said and explain the gospel at length. They hear it over and over in their environment. We, I, you know, I looked at Claire Harder when she came in and when we first started Crosspoint, um, she helped with the the kids and even down to two years old. It was really important that that we you know, explain the gospel in a way that kids could understand. Um, and so our kids did grow up in that environment by the grace of God. Um, I think that having them in a place where they can hear it at their level repeatedly um, and then just reviewing it with them. And, and honestly, we have three of our four boys. And so the amount of conversation that we have with them differs as far as, you know, what did you, <laughs> you know, but in asking the question, even if they're not a good conversation and you have to fight that discouragement of the, the he get anything out of this. I mean, he didn't learn a thing. Having that conversation still, I think, triggers the memory of what, what, what did happen. And, you know, we have bright kids. Our kids are, they're, I mean, they really, and I'm talking about kids, I'm talking about kids in general, um, kids just take in so much and they actually do listen and they do, um, they do hear it. And so having conversations over and over again, even if it's a one-way conversation, is helpful. And as Brian mentioned, I think our, with our kids, a lot of it was relationships and 
with friends and everyday things they would ask about. You know, and culturally right now, I think this is something that you guys are facing with young kids even more than we did, the cultural questions that are constantly bombarding them. Doesn't matter in what environment they're in, they're gonna have those. Mm -hmm. And those questions will be asked. And that is the opportunity then. I have found that with our kids, um, that's the opportunity to really discuss those issues in the light of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Not in light of what they're hearing from everyone, from their friends to social media. So just everyday, everyday stuff. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I think uh, we, you can speak to this if you want. What did discerning your children's faith look like? I would assume it's kind of what I laid out, just patience, trusting the Lord. But what I want to ask you, you can answer that. When did you finally rest in their profession? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, I, that is, um, uh, I think what I would say there is do not expect um, adult maturity spiritual maturity in the life of a young child because it can get discouraging where you think okay gosh this kid is um you know they seem to be professing faith they seem to understand the gospel when i talk about them but then they end up doing these things that just seem so foolish um and you you touched on this i think really well tyler is um just appreciate and remember all of the things that are going on in a young child heart young child's heart physiologically developmentally puberty all those things peer pressure um, and I would say that what we look for and what I would look for is a tenderness and a sorrow over sin. Mm -hmm. You talked about that really well, Tyler. I think of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where it talks about the difference between godly sorrow and gospel sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And if a child just seems to be sorrowful because of the consequences, uh, then I think that's worldly sorrow, mm -hmm. and I think you need to realize that as a parent. But if a child's heart is tender towards correction, if it's tender towards the ways that you are, you know, maybe rebuking them as a parent, and they seem to trust, I think that is a wonderful sign. Mm -hmm. And don't be discouraged if that is a long season, because kids are immature, and they will. Some of them will are dealing with things that we never dealt with as parents, as children. And so I would just say, give that a lot of grace and look for a kind of tender heart to the Lord. I think that's a that's the primary fruit that I look for. Yeah, I would say too that um, it's a, it is an up and down yeah. thing. And you know, as you were mentioning about, don't just like celebrate one thing because the next day you <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but it really is an encouragement and this was for me when when I would and, and they didn't know that inside I was like really really happy and cheering because so okay and you know and, and again this is everyday conversation everyday conversation this wasn't like big family meetings this was like we're in the car and they said such and such said so and so and you know what that's not good. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that we're supposed to da 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 da. And they would they would lay it out in a way that was so true and real. And you re you get a glimpse into the fact that they're understanding more and more. And it makes you just realize, okay, their heart is definitely in the transformation mode, if not already there. And and so you celebrate those moments because, as I mentioned, the next day. They're gonna say, "Oh, I slapped Sally on the plate." Okay, you know, so you never know. But, um, but it is an up and down thing, and I think recognizing when they finally get to a point where a maturity, and we've had the opportunity to to watch, we no longer have little kids, but our kids in maturity now, as teenagers and adults, are able to 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 then you know pour out mm -hmm. into others, and you recognize, you know what. This is a maturity that is um, I recognize as a gospel maturity and only only from God. Um, and that is that's just a beautiful thing. And we say this and so that we have we do have very imperfect children. One of the people in this room is married to one of them, so she can attest to that. Um, Who is she? Can she raise her hand? <laughs> but um, but no, just hearing their testimony in simple everyday ways. Mm. And hearing them repeat the gospel. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. Okay, so this is a kind of a hard question, and I, but I do think it's a part of maturing in our faith is being able to look back and not only see God's grace, but to see his grace in even the ways that we either maybe failed or ways that we were like, man, we just could have been better. So when you guys look back to your children being young, and in particular, uh, you know, revolving around their professions of faith or them being very new young believers, what do you all wish you had done differently? Or are there any things? It's not a hard question. I think it's a very simple question. For me, it's hard to answer. Uh, mm. it, is, um, it causes me some sorrow. But I think it's very clear to me. Uh, years ago, when we first started the church, um, I went to lunch with this older uh, pastor out of town. He pastors a church up in Lookout, or used to pastor a church up at Lookout, in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. His name is Joe Novenson. A uh, really wonderful, godly man. And I was just sitting there asking this guy about uh, being a parent as a pastor. And he, what he said to me struck me. I will never forget it. He said, what can I do to be a good parent as a pastor? And he said, be the best example of repentance that your children know. Hmm. And I thought, wow, I thought he was going to give me, you know, I'll you know, use this strategy or whatever. And there's lots to be said a lot along those lines. But um, I would, as I look back, um, I would want to do a better job of bearing the fruit of the gospel in my life before the eyes of my children mm. through humility and repentance. Um, one, one seems, man, it, it, it it's still, still runs through my mind every now and again. I remember when we first moved into this building, 2010, and it was maybe a year or two after that, and my oldest son, Joseph, who's about to be 25, he was, I was locking up the building. I remember kind of here late, and um, I was fussing at Joseph about something. He was, you know, messing around, and I, want, I wanted to go home. I wanted to get out of here. Bad sermon, I felt terrible about it. I wanted to go, you know, cry in my, you know, <laughs> And then I saw that there was this guy still in the church getting his stuff. And immediately when I saw this person from the church, I said, hey, how you doing, brother? Oh, man. Oh, it's wonderful to see you. And he's apologizing for being here late. You know, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Come on. Oh, yeah, you know, walked him out the door, and then I closed the door. And then Joseph's looking at me like, man, Dad, you just, like, you were just so mean to me. Mm. And you were so nice to that guy. And it just slammed me. I was like, gosh, what a, that's, that's, that's my heart a lot of parenting. And I never forgot that moment and then that lunch with that pastor that if I could go back, I would want to be more repentant. I would want to look for more opportunities to actually live out the grace of the gospel through repentance mm. in, in front of my children. You, your kids do not need perfect parents. You're not perfect parents. They need humble parents who are clinging to Jesus. And that will preach. That will preach. Mm -hmm. And so just, I would say, yeah, I'll shut up. Yeah, I don't want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of things, of course, that we would change and we regret. And that, I mean, that's the nature of life, right? Um, and I guess for me, it would be, I tend to, and we, I think we both kind of, we both have very, passionate personalities and short-tempered and um, sometimes it's difficult to to tease that out with our children and we become impatient I become impatient very impatient and I what I am doing becomes the most important thing because I got a lot to do mm -hmm. you know I got a lot to do we all got a lot to do and sometimes what is the most important thing became the thing that in my head We'll have this conversation later. We can do this later. I can I can bring this up later. I've got too much going on right now. This person needs me. I've got to be at work. I've got to do that. Right? Da, da, da. I got to get there. Mm -hmm. Blah blah blah. Instead of you know, the, this is the most important thing because, mm -hmm. as I mentioned with boys, especially and girls like this too. I'm just saying. But when they're ready to have a conversation, whether it's big or small, that's when they're ready to have it. Mm -hmm. You may not have the opportunity. Later, one of my biggest regrets is not stopping mm -hmm. the conversation, and it's not always possible. Not always possible, but 
knowing that you, that you are, they are your most important thing. It does also, I think, um, show them the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the last question was about encouraging young parents. Would you just pray a prayer of encouragement and we'll end our time? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and before I pray, I'm just thankful to Tyler for you guys. And the, and the, before I pray, just one exhortation. Like, you guys, I, I, I imagine that you are far better parents than you think you are. And I want you to kind of rest in that grace. Like, there is there's so much more intentionality and thoughtfulness around this in the culture of this church than what Jennifer and I grew, grew up in or were young parents in. Yeah. Um, so I think you're actually way better equipped, but I would also, as a critique, say that maybe you're maybe some of the most insecure generation mm-hmm. because you're so exposed to what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. You see it on you, you know, somebody else. You guys aren't joking about it. Somebody else's baby's eating kale and you know, <laughs> aging, whatever. Uh, man, like comparison will kill you. Mm-hmm. It will kill you. You insecurity will rob you of joy. Mm-hmm. It will make you parent tight. The Lord is sovereign. He's given these children to you, and and you are far, far more equipped than you think you are. Mm-hmm. I know that's the case. I know that's the case. So, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not doing time, folks. <laughs> no, you're fine. I I want to honor your time. I mean, you're. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I ain't got nowhere to be. <laughs> encouragement because this was what one of the things uh encouraging i think that the fact that you're here number one is a huge encouragement Mm. but prioritize the church Mm -hmm. prioritize the church in your life and also for your kids i mean we we saw this is still this is still a culture but it's not so much here but so many times we prioritize so many other things on Sunday, yeah. you know, we got, you know, we got vacations, we got beach, we got sports, we got blah, 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 blah. Um, one of the tiny little things, and this is, was our conviction, doesn't have to be yours, spend the night parties always on Saturday nights. I don't know why everybody wants to do that. My kids were never allowed to spend the night anywhere on Saturday night because it was a priority. They knew that. They knew they could go, they get picked up at a certain time. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that as an example of anything awesome. I'm just saying, make it a priority because this is one of the places that God has allowed, by His grace, to 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 teach our kids mm-hmm. and and let them listen to the teachers they've been given and the preachers. And and even if they don't, you don't think they're getting it, they're getting it, mm-hmm. they're hearing it, and so. Yeah, prioritize yeah. church. Yeah. Uh, before you pray, can we just thank God for them for giving us some time? Beth, a short applause just for Tyler and his efforts for this. And keep coming to this. Keep coming to this. Don't die out after two weeks. How long is this? Uh, four. Okay, so you're obligated to come for all four weeks. <laughs> um, Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Uh, thank you for the sweet privilege of. First of all, knowing Jesus, uh, as Tyler so clearly explained in the gospel, that saving faith is a sovereign, divine work of your free grace. And so we glory and wonder at our own salvation, that you would give us children to be part of your means of grace, and we're willing to bring these children to faith, these lives that you love far more than we do is a stunning thing. Hmm. Lord, I pray that you would uh, use this class today and in the coming weeks to bolster, to encourage the parenting in this church, and that you would give people not only a, a sense of great responsibility, but, but also rest in the gospel and trust in your grace and the fact that you do not save by perfect parenting and by the perfect execution of good principles, you save by grace. Mm-hmm. And yet you use means to bring about that grace. So give us, Lord, give every parent in this room a proper balance and understanding of those things. That we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Part of that is parenting these children. 
but it is God who works in and through us according to his good pleasure to bring about his will. So we rest in that. Lord, if there are parents in this room who are just really, really struggling, settle them down, Lord. Mm. Settle them down. Mm. If there are any of them in this room that are maybe a little proud of their efforts, uh, Lord, would you would you humble them? Uh, and would you, I pray, use these three or four weeks to be a means of grace by which you bring many sons and daughters to glory mm. to see Jesus. Mm. And we offer it all to you with thankfulness in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, guys.